Hey, hello. You're welcoming. You're welcoming. No, I'm welcoming you back to the Beat Motel podcast, and I am honoured and a little aroused to be uh, <laughs> be in the company of Doctor Sam Page, who a blackbird who won't shut up. Oh, it's a blackbird, is it? We. Uh... You're right. Eurasian blackbird. Eurasian. Um, so I'm in Ipswich, and it's as hot as a badger's ass here. And Sam is in Helsinki. How's the weather in Helsinki, Sam? Oh, I'd, I'd go for a, maybe a moist cat's ass. <laughs> moist cat? Cats don't get moist. It's kind of like a cat thing that cats <laughs> don't get moist. They actively they actively avoid it. There was a band in Ipswich. Oh, even their tongue is dry, isn't it? <laughs> there was a band in Ipswich called Hooray for Snakes, which is, for one thing, a great band name. But they they had an EP called "The Truth Behind Why Cats Don't Like Getting Wet," and it didn't contain any answers at all, which I think was was a bit of a letdown. Right, so we have a theme this week. The theme this week is bands who don't translate from stage to record. Explain the premise there, Sam. Uh, yeah, I, I. It's a bit of a hard. It was a really hard one to come up with actually mm. for a playlist because so many bands do it well of being slightly different things live to record. And but it's I, I guess there's just like a. It was more like a thing of like. I, I have been, and I think there's a the, maybe the first thing we'll play is. This is is this band, but I've re- always been struck how much I enjoy a lot of post, particularly post metal stuff live, and I just have no patience whatsoever for it on record. No patience is such a good way of describing it. My my take on it is that I've been seen a lot of bands on stage and gone, wow, that's fantastic, especially at festivals, and then gone home and gone, I don't know what they were trying to do here. It's 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 an interesting thing because it's also that question of like how do you capture because so many so many people, bands sort of talk about you know they have this one stage presence was it uh, the band Howling Rain whose one of their albums was produced by Rick Rubin and they had this phenomenal sort of live uh, reputation and Rick Rubin said right well go off on tour and we're going to record you after you've played your basically the whole album live and so only when you know it and this will get i'll get back to this with one of my choices but only when you know it will we record it inside out will we record it and so and you were going to basically try and capture the live performance um, rather than capture this something that i think a lot of the time the studio becomes a quite a tame version of uh, what live powerful band can be Right, so before we get into this properly, let's do Riff of the Week. So here is your Riff of the Week. Would you like to introduce it? Because I don't know how to say the band name. Uh, Anti Tanks? Anti Tanks? Anti Thatax? No, who knows? They're Canadian. Doesn't matter what their name is. And the song is called Solar Witch, which. Here we go. Solar Witch. Let your 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> so why is that your choice? Tell, tell us a bit more about. I I've been waiting to hear someone do that with double kicks for so long. That sort of <clears throat> sort of slow slowing down and sort of playing with the tempo of it, and it's it's sort of it's so nice to hear this. For one, one I just love the sound of that sort of pulsing or pulsation of the of the double kick, but it was also so nice to actually. So much of the time, heavy metal drums these days can sound like just this machine, mm. which just sort of sounds like a machine going wrong. Um, yeah, exactly. It's just sort of this rumble of bass uh, drum, whereas this is sort of really playing with this. And, you know, there's a weird thing at the moment where I think the black metal scene has got this sort of abundance of uh, really exciting experimentalism in, going on inside it. And... This just this track. The whole album's great, but this track stands out head and above it because of sort of that just inventiveness this track has with rhythmic uh, sort of devices, and it's just it's so it's so cool to put that into a song and that riff into a song, and it's so so unique uh, to my ears at the moment, um, and it's I, also. I- yeah, I just loved it. I just like one of those moments where your just ears just go, "What the fuck? That's so good." That that sort of rising intensity is such a tease because it doesn't, mm. you know, it, it just keeps resetting and going again. And I, I really like that. I think in in our discussions on this podcast, we've often said that I'm often a fan of rhythm before melody. So anything like that. In fact, my my riff of the week is quite an old song. Um, I'm trying to think when it was late 90s possibly and it's a band that that i have always liked because of their rhythms i've not chosen a particularly good chance a choice of it. i've chosen a song which is just i just like a bit of shouting and this has got some good <laughs> shouting by a i think the singer was glaswegian and when you spoke to him personally it was proper thick accent uh so the band is prolapse which when the internet first became a thing i learned very quickly not to search uh, image search for <laughs> and the song is from an album called Ghosts of Dead Airplanes, which again, just I love titles like that. And it's called <laughs> it's called The Government of Spain. And I think you probably could have guessed that when you listened to it, because here we go. the guy he's well, I might not even be six feet tall but I'm I'm quite a big person and just hearing him screech like that is just brilliant and I don't know what the government of Spain did to upset them oh, but I, I've, I've been going through what the, I, I love I love I was listening to someone I was listening to uh what the Ezra Furman uh, uh mm-hmm. and Laura Jane Grace oh you uh, heard that on six music yeah I thought I've, I'm sort of slowly going through it but they played this uh, this wonderful 
uh, singer, but I didn't like the, I, the music was a bit low key for me. Um, something Cummings, uh, uh, she used that voice so one, you know, amazingly. And it just reminded me. And then I think another choice was, was that English band, the Idols, mm. Idols. And I just couldn't get into Idols because he just seemed to be doing the same thing every song. Mm. And I, it just made me miss. I really like, I really like people who aren't afraid of doing weird things with their voices, who aren't particularly fantastically trained. And you know, great. He's trying to. He's fine. He, he can't sing amazingly, but you know, prolapse guy can't sing amazingly. But he's trying to do something interesting. He's trying to create some sonic texture with changing up his voice a bit. I, I think and his name was Mick Derrick. <laughs> Yeah, I think his name is Mick Derrick, which is just such yes. a... I can't think of a more British name than Mick Mick Derrick. But also, they different take on it, but that was another Ascending Parts track, wasn't mm, it? Yeah, Very different know, yeah, production yeah, yeah, yeah. and whatever, but you know, that's quite a lovely coincidence. Right, so let's... Oh, actually, just before, we, just before we move on from uh, talking about Idols, because it is in context to this, this, you know, this show, this episode, I got to know them really well because they're a listed on six music here so all their songs when they first came out were played you know all the singles and they are undeniably songs versus choruses versus choruses and they popped up on glastonbury around the same time because the bbc i think essentially funds glastonbury festival and live they don't with just screechy you know delay soaked guitars that was very structureless but with driving drums and i don't know if that that when they get into the studio that's when they then sort of turn essentially these jams into songs but i thought i was really surprised i was like wow i just thought they'd get up there and play the hits but right so here we go with our first song this is one of sam's it it is albert ayler and the track is dc have i got that the right way around yeah yeah albert i would say albert ayler but Oh. It makes sense as well. We're back to the forbidden music again, Sam. So <laughs> I, just, I just want to give a shout out actually to Brighton the Corners, the festival. They they kindly told everybody about about the reviews I did of it, of the, the Brighton the Corners festival. And I wonder how many people who listen to the, those episodes have now just switched off, <laughs> kind of starting with, with extreme black metal, going to prolapse, whatever they were, and then playing that. But, oh, come on, Sam, just, just tell us, was that a live recording or was that a studio recording? Oh, it's live recording. It's jazz. It's pretty much all live. But that was done in, probably in a studio. I don't know much about that. But um, it's more like um, it's not really against Albert either. It's more like against recorded free jazz. And there's an aspect where it's such a ridiculous, like there's an aspect of free jazz where it's 
live, it, it can be this really involving, intense, uh, just it's all about the moment. And to me, that's what a lot of free jazz and free noise stuff is. It's all about the moment. It's not really about trying to capture this thing to then replay it. It's not, you know, it is just this intensity of the moment. And some there are some free jazz records that are sort of spectacular. And I really like the the Ornette Coles, Coleman stuff. Um, mm. But it's also, you know, it's never a, it's never a calming listen. Um, but then just generally... <laughs> Go to sleep, child. Ge- generally, <laughs> this will lull you to sleep. Um, generally, it's not uh, just something I think translates well to record because it, it, it takes you outside that moment of intensity. And to me, free jazz is such a sort of moment of intensity that it just doesn't translate that well to a recorded sentiment. Um, yeah, that is, that's my sort of, my, my bugbear with recorded free jazz stuff because it, I mean, it's all, and there's a point where, you know, with that, it is just people scrawling and hitting each other, which doesn't make <laughs> sense out of a context. I wonder, you know, be... so no, go, go for it. I, I wonder whether there might be a shift in, in the way the public views recordings versus live because the industry model for 30 years, you know, from 50s to 2000s was get band in studio, record stuff, send them out on tour so that more people buy the recorded stuff because the recorded stuff was where bands made money and, you know, that, that was just the way the industry worked. But now with streaming, the, you know, the revenues are so tiny and i'm not just talking about my own (laughs) revenues they're so small that bands are quite openly saying look we make money from merch and playing live now and i wonder if that will make them more conservative with their recordings or try and get them closer to you know the recordings can then become an advert for the live experience whereas previously the live experience was an advert for the recordings well, is it? I mean, for me, for my money, I've this in the last few months. I've sort of discovered. I've never really understood the point of live albums to an extent, and then it's contractual I heard, fulfillment. I think usually. <laughs> yeah, I, I but I, I there was a like a lost. There was a sort of rediscovered Sam Cooke, who's a like the the original soul singer, uh, the guy who sort of invented soul in some ways, um, or defined uh, a lot of its shape. And he, they sort of put out an album after his death. Uh, I um, can't remember when they put this album out, but it's he's got his recorded studio material is hit and miss. This live album is just fucking phenomenal. What's it called? Sam Cook live album, um, and it's him in a small club, just sort of. Uh, he just—he sounds like he's—he's he's barely breaking a sweat, but he also sounds like, like, the the hottest thing going. Uh, live albums. Sam Cooke live at the Harlem Square Club, nineteen sixty-three, released nineteen eighty-five. So it was a really discovered it's thing. Wow. Yeah, and then there's also I also got uh, an Otis Redding live album, and. Um, that was, you know, sort of, again, he, he did two live, uh, what is it, uh, 
two live albums that are known, at least I know about two live albums. Um, Sam Cook live album. Oh, he's got quite a few. Uh, I've got, um, yeah, in person at the Whiskey Go Go. So he did a live album with, um, it was an interesting sort of aspect that soul singers would do these live albums with uh, really like the, the best. Uh, band live band going so maybe Otis Redding uh, would go on tour with his own band and then do a live album with uh, Aretha Franklin's band because they were just considered better musicians tighter and so on and so forth but there's something yeah but there's something about you know these bands that are touring together and they're playing together every night that they just click and they sync so much and that's happened with like, the Sam Cook one. That happened with the Reading Otis Reading uh, live at the Whiskey Go Go. They're just so in sync with one another. And on this uh, in person at the Whiskey Go Go, um, he does a cover of uh, "Papa's Got a Brand New Bag," which, for my money, blows anything James Brown James Brown's version out of the water completely. Even if Brown wrote it, um, and I always think that yeah, yeah, of course I you know. Maybe, and that goes back to this idea, like the records with a uh, advert for the live album. But these days, when you can't sort of go back to see these bands, they're now sort of this lauded thing. When I was working at uh, this record shop here in Helsinki, um, there in came this David Bowie live album that was recorded on the same tour as his. his big live album, what's it called? Uh, I don't know. Excuse the screeching. Uh, Pterodactyl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what's it? David Bowie live album. He did one with Adrian Ballou as uh, the guitarist. Um, stage, that's a double album stage. Adrian Ballou's as the guitarist. And it's the same tour, but this one is called it was a bootleg live in Bergen a really good soundboard recording from the late 1970s and um, unlike uh, the stage album where they're sort of they obviously know they're recording it to be released as an album as a state of contractual obligation you know in this live at Bergen which is just this bootleg Adrian Ballou goes off and he's one of the most individual guitarists and this is like 1970s, and it was just, you know, he was just, he had just joined Bowie from uh, Bowie, from the from Frank Zappa's touring band, and he was just absolutely incredible. And I urge people, if they like Bowie, to find this Live in Bergen um, uh, album, uh, Bootleg. It's got to be out there somewhere, but it's just, he's, he's so good on it. Oh, bootlegs is almost a whole topic by itself isn't it um yes. right so we're going to move on now slightly different genre slightly different type of thing you're talking about the very best and the most talented uh i'm going to play you a band which i put on a few times here in ipswich i think they're from brighton they're called the phil collins three have you heard of them oh yeah, yeah. so live they were just wild really exciting so i'm going to play one of it's the only recording i could find and i think it is the only recording they ever released and it was on a compilation it wasn't even you know this is all bands release stuff now as soon as they start but people didn't used to record for a few years after swarming a band so here is i'm not going to give you the title because it's going to give away the song 
That was Pooey Stick by the Phil Collins three. Now clearly, when I saw them, harmonies going on there. <laughs> but clearly, like, when I put them on at the Steamboat Tavern in Ipswich, they didn't have the full youth choir thing. But I think it's incredible that they, I don't, that they managed to even do that. And live, they were they used to dress up. They used to like stuff things in their clothes to make them look themselves look misshapen, and they'd build these amazing amazing stage sets. Like they they did like city skylines. And the amount of effort they went into, and the, it was such a brilliant experience live that when I first heard that recording, you know, back back when it was made, I was like, ah, ah, oh, come on, it's it's. They just apparently they were courted by major labels briefly, who then <laughs> got terrified by the prospect of trying to make money out of something like that, and and you know ran away. But what a bonkers song that is. Pretty much the entire song at thirty seconds as well. So they 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 burn <laughs> <laughs> you know, intensely but shortly. But um, as you say, it was difficult to choose tracks for this, and and I was, really didn't want to choose a band. And then have that band think, well, we we did try. So I just wanted to mm. just choose something that was a complete wild card and just you know, miles off. Right. So let's go for your next selection, which is Matt Watt. Do you want to say, uh, tell me what the, tell us what the song title is? Oh, I need to get it up first. You've got to look uh, it up. I'll, my... I'll just say it. It's yeah. ba- baby Cradling Tree Man. I thought it was cradling the packaging when I first heard it, but it's packaging. <laughs> that who knows what Mike Watt say. So Mike Watt, the Minutemen, and this album, all the songs are really, really short. It sounds like yeah. he was trying out ideas. God, t- tell us a bit about this album. Well, I know. I, one of the lo- things I loved about the Minutemen and this album, which this album was sort of written in memory of, in a way, of the Minutemen. Um, and um, I love, I always love the sort of the shortness of my, of uh, the Minutemen because it's sort of, it is like a, like being confronted by just these really sort of amazing ideas. And it's not like, uh, like a grindcore album where you're just confronted and assaulted by, things going on a hundred miles an hour. These are sort of melodic ideas that, you know, they have all sorts of shapes to them and it's, and it's a very, um, really entertaining listen. And this album was the first, he said, Mike Watt said, it's the first album he tried to listen to, tried to write since the demise of 
the Minutemen because of the boom's untimely death in the uh, mid to late 80s. Um, he tried to write like a Minutemen album. And um, he he did the, as he did it as the you know they, he did it as a, this trio and he did it as the thing to basically advertise his touring. But the thing is that I think they had just got figured out the songs and we saw them pretty early on in this sort of touring circuit. He toured this album for years and. We saw that we saw him at ATP pretty early on. Oh, and it was a bit, remember, yeah, yeah. It was a bit empty, and it was a bit like, oh. And I was, I was really trying to love it because I love so much of Mike Watts' output. He's so endlessly interesting as a musician, and I, I, you know, as a bassist who likes punk rock and jazz, he's so sort of uh, a good place to find yourself, sort of trying to be inspired by. Um, and uh, then this album came out and then they played this album on like they went through a massive tour in the US and then they brought that tour to the Europe and they played every tiny like venue it was really long touring like Mike Watts occasionally does and he did this thing he played Brighton and it was this three piece I've never and it was such a beautifully constructed show because that by that point, they knew the songs inside out. Whereas mm. when they were recording the album, it sort of feels quite like they're, str- they're still trying to feel out what things are. So the louder points live, the louder points were louder, the quieter points were so much quieter. Like they had this really nice bit where they just were still making a noise, but they were barely touching their instruments. And then they just bring it back full volume. And it was so sort of like dramatic and everything you wanted, I wanted the album to be live. And it's just, you know, it's such a shame to me that they they never produced a live version of that record because the studio version feels so quiet and so tame, so sort of, um, so it's nice. safe it's a, compared yeah, to Yeah, nice yeah. and safe, isn't it? That, that always surprised yeah. me. I mean, okay, so let's move on to the next track. Now, the next track, we struggled earlier with with uh, saying fantastic facts for the uh, your riff of the week. This this is a bit of an obvious choice for me for a band that live I really enjoy, but on record I don't really bother with. And it's Sunno, and the song is, I'm going to try and say this, the song is Big Church, and then in brackets it says... Mega sensel tell C S and Sel Gess D S S second Kurt. And that's I'm not reading the accents above the E's correctly or anything, but well man, let's just Right, so yeah, five chords there. I tend to think with Sunno on record, I think, "Cool, that's a great guitar sound," and then I spot a fluffy dog outside and get distracted. (laughs) It doesn't for me. 
production is amazing. And the first time I saw Sun, I was probably it was with you at ATP in in Butlins in Minehead, and absolutely astonished by just the volume and it, it's a it's a whole body experience. And I apologise if I told this story on the podcast before, but I was thick with cold and it cleared my, my sinuses out. And it was such an ethereal, weird experience. I ended up down at the front, just sort of transfixed by these cloaked figures in all this thick smoke. And at the end, they they took their hoods off and bowed and, and all that stuff. And that's when I noticed that one of them I'd met before, he'd been queuing up with us for the, the flumes at the swimming pool at Butlins in Minehead that morning for a good couple of hours. And I can remember him because he was the only person queuing up to go down the flumes wearing tighty whities that had gone see-through. He didn't have any swimming equipment, <laughs> yeah, any swimming trunks or anything. So, yeah, it, it did take the shine you off the mystery. Kit, you're going to have to do it in your pants. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like getting your kid at school. <laughs> but uh, I have to be honest, I haven't yeah. really got much more to say other than Sunno Live. I'd go again. But on record, I, I, don't, I don't understand. Like, I, Did they have, I, mean, I think they had an ATP. I, I think they had the, or what, one of the aspects I loved about them life was sort of the ridiculousness of it because they have, what's it, they, they make like they have so many amps on stage that they, they make a semi Stonehenge, half circle yeah. Stonehenge out of their amps. So they have these massively tall, probably bass cabs, and then these guitar amps, probably orange. Oh, or a mixture Sano. of things. Sunno, yeah. <laughs> hence the name. Um, and um, they, uh, yeah, they make such. And I remember seeing them in Brighton. Last time I saw them was in Brighton. I went from being so fucking annoyed with them to being absolutely transfixed. And mm. I go from sort of uh, like just the magic being broken. Then a few seconds later, I was completely in their world and then a few seconds and then a few minutes later I just wanted to go to the pub fuck this and then <laughs> and, but the, but yeah record live I was just I'm just what's the point because the problem pro- part of the problem with this band and like a few of these other things part of the problem with Sun O' Live is that you can just turn the volume down <laughs> mm. You know, when you're when you're home, you're like, yeah, okay, I'm just going to listen to it. It's just going to be white noise in the background. Five, it, you know, a chord every five minutes. It's on the forbidden music list in my house, very much so. Uh, right, let's move on. I am going to your choices, and this is a band you and I have seen together, and I first saw. I'm going to tell you later. Here you go. Hello? Is anything happening? Deaf Heaven with Vertigo. Tell us a bit about that, Sam. I think it's sort of like a like uh, I think I said earlier that there's parts of post rock and post metal that I just do not get on record whatsoever. And I remember going to see uh, Deaf Heaven at the what was it? It's the UCU University College Union 
in London with you. Yeah, that's where you and I went together, yeah. Yeah, and, and sort of going, whoa, this band's got, like, there's so much sort of, they're so good live. And, you know, that sounds great on record. I can't deny that, you know, they, they're recorded very well. It just I just do not have the patience for sort of six, seven-minute tracks, which is where I get, you know, it's like there's an aspect of, because I, I, I and maybe this is sort of a, partly to do with my bad listening habits of like, of trying to do stuff whilst I'm listening to stuff, but uh, I just, I don't, I just don't have the patience for it um, because I, I like, I don't, I'm not good with uh, uh, delayed gratification. I want my shit now, and frankly, the Minutemen and punk rock and most like death metal stuff gives me what I want immediately. There's no hiding around it. Whereas, you know, there's this sort of like, we're going to strum a few chords for for five minutes and then we're going to go into a blast beat. And I just, you know, and live, I found it very profound and very moving. But, yeah. See, very I'm the cool. total opposite. I think I, I love that. I wouldn't want all the songs to be like it. They're the new, the new album by Gay Rear, I absolutely love. And the first track has that noodling around kind of come on, get on with it thing. But it, it builds up the tension so nicely that when the, the song does kick in, it's so powerful. After that, you can just skip through the songs. Every, every single one of them starts, you know, on full tilt. And that's great. But I think, you know, a little bit of a little bit of kind of light and <coughs> dark is, is 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 I'm a big fan of that that album. When I first heard Deaf Heaven, I first saw them at, at Heaven, actually, in, in London. I think I listened to it at the gym. Because for the gym, it was so perfect. It didn't require enough of my attention to really get the nuances of it, but it had enough drive and went on long enough that if I was doing 10 minutes on a, you know, the tracks were long enough that I was doing 10 minutes on a treadmill or something, I had something that just sort of neatly fitted the whole length of it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that. I, un- I understand that. And I think, I don't, yeah, it's... it's we, well, we should come back to exercise and and heavy music. Exercise and heavy music. There's there's a good good topic for a podcast, right? I'm going to go for I'm going to go for my last choice, and then after that, we're going to go for your last choice. So here is my last choice. I'm, I can't see the full title of the track. Right here we go. I've got. Some- sound into electricity. Can you hear me now? Out on Route 128, you're dark and lonely. You got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? So that is Shellac with The End of Radio. And I chose that because at God, we talk about ATP a lot on this. Was it an ATP? And they they start that track and the drummer. Yeah, we've moved on from against me. But the drummer was at the back of the room doing hitting that snare and he walked through the room and the performance of Shellac was yeah. just so brilliant. I, I rushed home and I've got to get that album. Listen to the album and just kind of went, eh. But I don't know. It's just 
it, it didn't connect. And it's Steve Albini. I mean, the man is a he he's produced some pretty amazing bands and has a unique sound. But you know, I am going to alienate some. I'm going to alienate some of my band members by saying on record, Shellac don't throw me. But live, you want to play my last track, do. and that way I'm going to play your last track, Sam, because <laughs> then we'll have then we'll have a proper discussion. Yeah. Come on, play your fucker. On Sam, who was that? That was Shellac with Steady As She Goes, I think from the same album. Um, it's the same and, album, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm completely uh, I, I'm completely with you. I remember that gig where they were playing, um, yeah, when the drummer walked through the stage, they walked through the crowd rather playing, and yeah, they're such a powerful live band. And I... And I completely agree with you. And then you get the record, and it just sort of sounds flaccid somehow. It's like flaccid. The, the power of them live just is not there recorded. And I think partly, I think it's partly to do with Steve Albini's current philosophy on recording. I was I was listening to an interview with him that's doing the round. I think it's on YouTube, and he said when he recorded the Pixies, and maybe when he recorded Nirvana, he was sort of, I'm not so sure about the Nirvana thing, but when he was recording the Pixies, he was like, he was much more, he didn't really, he was trying to figure out still his role as a producer, engineer sort of person. And he hadn't, he hadn't settled on this idea that he was just there to set up the situation and record the person. He was there. He he was still sort of going. Oh wait, maybe you guys could try this. Maybe you guys, you know, sort of this much more traditional producer role. And apparently, he felt uncomfortable with his his sort of spotlight when the Pixies were asked some questions about production sounds. Apparently, he just felt quite uncomfortable with the Pixies going. Oh, that's Steve's idea. So you know, um, you should ask him. And. There's this sort of aspect of this idea, this idea he has of like sonic um, honesty as a recording, and I, I think sonic honesty. Yeah, and I, I actually I, I think he he's a he seems quite a, quite a belligerent fellow, um, and for my money, he's sort of he is not a. If unless you're an amazingly powerful band, and maybe that's why Nirvana's Neutro is so good, um, he's not the greatest person to record with, in my estimation, because because he is, you know, not going to use that studio as a, a, a he, this desire for sonic honesty misses the point that the studio in itself is. And maybe I haven't read enough of his stuff, but it's manipulating everything anyway. 
Yeah, studio is an, an extra instrument, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and uh, in my in my opinion, and this is a thing that I think, um, and that's why sort of shellac sound they just sound a bit mono. They they sound weirdly. They're not compressed, but they just don't sound exciting live. I mean, mm. they, they, sorry, they don't sound exciting recorded, in my mm. opinion. Yeah, I, I'm going to listen to it again, actually, I've got to say, because just then when we were listening to that 30-second clip and any new listeners, we can't play more than 30 seconds, otherwise we get our, our we get our, our, our bollocks conquered by, uh, by PRS. Um, that's not the right phrase, is it? But I quite enjoyed that. And I think it might be because as we record this, Sam, you're in Helsinki, I'm in I'm in Ipswich, and the sound is a bit ropey today for us. I mean, it should be fine on the, on the podcast, but it gave it a bit of grit that I think the actual recording is missing. And I was like, oh, okay, no, I quite enjoyed that. I know, I know. I for me, what it put me, I like, I did enjoy that, and I was just like, but it reminded me so strongly of seeing them live, rather than having any sort of like. If Shalak were playing, you know, next week, I'd go and see them again on the basis of mm. listening to those records and reminding me how good they are live. Would I buy the next Shalak record that comes out? No, I, I can't be fucked. Well, this is the interesting thing. The point of this episode isn't these bands are great live and shit on record. It's not that at all. It's just no, no. the connection to us in a very subjective way is very is very different. And you yeah, know, some bands, like I mentioned Idols earlier, live, I think they are actually a different band. You know, they sound different. Mm. Everything's, it's completely different translation of, of whatever it is they are, they are trying to do. Right, Sam, I need to wind it up there. So I'm going to throw a new segment at you that I have not told you about at all. <laughs> and I was thinking we can try this at the end of each episode. And I'm going to ask you to do for... 60 seconds, something I'm calling Sam's So What segment. So in 60 <laughs> seconds, can you give us a summary of the entire episode? And I'm going to tell you when to start. Start now. I think you've already done that the best. Um, this isn't about, this is our subjective relationship. And this is, I guess, about how maybe seeing a band live and then being so good live can ruin those recorded experiences of trying to reproduce that at home. And that reproduction at home doesn't always work that well. And also brings into question of what the live experience should be versus what the recorded experience should be. And it was, it would have been so much easier to. Sorry, that was 30 seconds. Finish your thought, though, because uh, that was—I'd like to where you're going with that. Um, it's so much. It would have been so much easier, and one of the reasons I liked this idea was that it was so much easier to pick bands that were better on record than live, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you know, to pick bands that actually would go and see live. I'd see Sono live again. I'd see Albert Isla live in a heartbeat. I'd see my all of my choices. I would go and see live again. Um, I would tread very carefully around their records. It's interesting that out when we were picking the the tracks here, I thought out of any of the, the topics we've done, this would be the one that if I was in one of these bands, I'd probably be the most piss, pissed off or frustrated about. <laughs> because so much work goes into the studio, so much to have a couple of kind of blokes go, well, I don't.
that that would be the one that I was like, oh shit, I don't want some of these bands to find about this and, and come and come and duff me up. <laughs> but it oh, is no, as you, you know, say, this is subjective. it is subjective. And also like this is the point of like the point of criticism, uh, who said um uh, some who was this arsehole of writing about music? Like, I thought you were going to use that. Every, 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 like opinions, everyone's got an arsehole. Just um, don't get it out in public. Writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Um, yes. And who was it? Actually, who was it? Uh, this is it's, it's given. It's it was made popular. It's mis commonly attributed to Laurie Anderson and Elvis Costello, but actually Costello. Uh, himself credited to a comedian called Martin Mull. Um, and a variation, this is from Wikipedia, says talking about music is like singing about economics. And <laughs> Love it. The thing is that I sort of, yeah, it's, I mean, that's comedy and that's explain the joke, but it will ruin it. But the thing is that criticism isn't there to sort of say this is, shit it's there to sort of go you know everybody critiques their own stuff and so i just think it's quite fun and you know none of these none of these bands i mean i hey give my left nut to do what some of these bands do particularly particularly i would say live um particularly live I think that is a good summary. Uh, let's call it quits there. Anything more you want to add before I press the big stop button? Uh, I think you've added quite a lot. Should we just... I'm going to say goodbye. Do you want to say goodbye? Or sing us a little song or something? He doesn't look... I can't think either. of any songs about economics. There is one, but I can't remember it either. Let's just say goodbye. Bye. Hello.